Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. In today's episode, I am joined by Tyler Norwood. We begin the discussion on Antler's origin and model, then explore the centrality of counterculture to innovation and end up on the need for frontier moments to spark the next generation of entrepreneurs. It's quite the free-flowing conversation. Tyler is managing partner for Antler in the United States, where he oversees the firm's U.S. growth and geographic expansion. He joined Antler in 2017 as its fifth full-time employee and has been instrumental in launching and scaling the firm. Prior to joining Antler, Tyler was the global head of business development for Global Fashion Group, where he was in charge of launching a marketplace business model for GFG's companies across 21 different countries. He also assisted with the company's IPO in Frankfurt in 2017. Before GFG, Tyler was the interim head of marketplace at Jbong, which he helped sell for $70 million in 2016, and head of marketplace Vietnam at Zalora, the largest fashion e-commerce company in Asia. Along the way, uh, Tyler has also completed the Vietnam Marathon, Singapore Marathon, and Boulder Ironman. Tyler is passionate about providing a better on-ramp to venture capital for founders who want to change the world and hands-on support for founders in the first six months of launching a new startup. Enjoy, Tyler, and my wide-ranging conversation. Tyler, welcome to Austin Next. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be here. Very excited. All right, let's start a little bit on the big picture here. Can you tell me a bit about the history of Antler and its model? Yeah, for sure. So we originally started Antler uh, back in 2018 in Singapore. The co-founding team had lived and, and built companies in Southeast Asia, so that's where we sort of had a reputation. Uh, the Singaporean government was also very helpful to help us get started. So you know, they gave us everything we needed to start a financial services company kind of right off the bat. And... Our team was super international from day one. So I think of the first 10 hires, there was like six different passports in those 10 people. And uh, Singapore is a really easy place to do that, which you know people don't think about a lot. It's, it's really hard to do something like that in the United States, unfortunately, right now. So I originally started there. In 2019, I moved back to the United States. So we decided that the U.S. market would be the fourth market that we expand into. I was still the only U.S. partner. I really wanted to be back in the U.S. It's the ecosystem that I care about the most. I think there's the most opportunity here. So moved to New York in 2019, launched our U.S. fund here in 2019. And me and my team, which are now, there's 21 of us here in the U.S. now, across three locations, so New York, Austin, Boulder. Yeah, we've been building you know, Antler here in the U.S. since 2019. A little bit about our model. So I'll start at the high level because I know Antler can be very confusing to people. The best way to think about Antler is sort of a federated fund model. So every regional fund is its own fund. We raise our own money from our own LPs. We have our own mandate to invest in startups within that region. And there's a leadership team that runs all of those operations. At the same time, we also operate as one company globally. So there is a global management company that has shared services for everybody. So think of things like, you know, shared financial services, shared marketing services, technology, 
uh, back of house stuff, as well as strategy, us all being aligned on like, how do we continue to invest in great founders across the world? We have one Slack as an organization, you know, every year, all the partners get together globally and we talk about it. So uh, it's an interesting blend between being one company, as well as having different funds that have slightly different applications of the model in the regions that they're in based on that market. The actual model itself, I think it's pretty simple. So uh, it really came from, so Magnus, our CEO and myself, we worked in Rocket Internet previously, and we were building a, a rocket company called Zalora in Southeast Asia. And if you look at the second and third order of companies that were started from Zalora, I mean, almost every unicorn in Southeast Asia has a Rocket Internet co-founder. And hmm. so the amount of value that came out of the alumni of that company was immense. And what we saw happen over and over again is people that we worked with day in, day out that we knew were excellent, right? We knew, hey, this person is top tier, right? This top 10% of all the people inside of Zalora. They would leave to go build their own company. They wouldn't have anywhere to go, right? There wasn't like any physical location or community to be a part of. They would sort of wander between WeWorks or work out of their house. Their reputation didn't transfer over at very high fidelity. So like the reputation they had inside is Zalora of people that have worked side by side with them, that sort of qualitative sense of like, you know, Jason is really, really awesome. It didn't translate over into the, the, the outside world very well. So they really struggled to fundraise. They struggled to kind of get things off the ground. Do you think that was a, a because of the maturity of like the innovation ecosystem? Because they were, it was really kind of um, still very connected into those single companies. And so that was where the reputation and the funding all was connected to. Or it was just the way the networks kind of worked in Southeast Asia. Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, I think one way I think about that question is like compare it to the U.S., right? And try to figure out like, is that same gap true in the U.S.? And I think it is. And, and where I think the gap is, is like, the, the qualitative data that you sort of build on someone working with them side by side every day, it doesn't transfer out into the real world because what the real world is facing, and when I say the real world, it's like any other fund or customer or employee who'd want to join your company. What they're facing is like a, a noise to signal ratio problem where it's like, hey, like I saw that you worked at this really awesome tech startup, but like a lot of people did and maybe only 10 to 25% of those people are like really, really excellent. And I would want to invest or be your customer or join. So that's where I think the gap comes from is that like you have so much better data on the strength of someone as a founder, having worked with them for some period of time, like day in and day out. And so that was really the origination. Like when Magnus and I were in Zalora, we had talked about this and Magnus always wanted to build a venture capital firm. And I really credit that insight we had to the model of Antler, which was there was basically two things happening. Number one was despite there being lots of capital in the market, there was still a big gap in that zero to one of like, I just left my company. I don't know what I'm building yet. I don't have a pitch deck. I don't have a team. I don't have any of that stuff, but I'm starting the journey. So we felt like there was an opportunity to build a product for founders that gave them a place to be gave them a community to be a part of and gave them the resources that you need to get a company off the ground, e.g., you know, support, coaching, and probably most important, capital. And on the other side, you know, what we'd always thought is like, if we would have written a 100K check into every person that we knew was great leaving Zalora, we'd have the best performing fund in the history of the world. Like, we would have absolutely crushed it. So it's like, how can you build that same conviction, not 
going into a company and working at it. And that really married with the product for founders is how we do our underwriting and how we're able to, you know, in our opinion, write checks before any other VC. So the eight week residency, you come in for founders. The product is you have a place to be, you have a community to be a part of there's capital, there's coaching, there's, you know, potential co-founders, there's all the things you need in the early stages. And for us, we get to spend those eight weeks to recreate that similar data set of like, I want to work beside you for eight weeks. And if I can do that, I can make a really high conviction investment decision before you have traction, before you have a customer, before your team's complete, before you have a pitch deck. So like all the things that are sort of hygiene factors for going out and fundraising, I can make a decision and give you the money you need to get started before that if I can spend eight weeks with you. So how then, because you're doing a lot of the high conviction by working next to the people, Mm -hmm. but how are you doing the early stage filtering to bring people into the residency since they're so, so early, you know, in some cases, I mean, napkin level, even pre-idea. How are you kind of doing that filtering? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, so to quantify it in uh, 2023, we did close to 10,000 applications for our uh, residency across three locations in the U.S. We accepted about two and a half percent of those applications so far. I mean, even in January, we're already on a run rate to be somewhere between twelve and 14,000 applications. So for us, the demand for a better product at this stage is there. Uh, to your question on you know how we do the selection, we have a dedicated scouting team who look through the applications, um, do interviews with the founders. Uh, we do a lot of outreach as well. So we also reach out to people and say, hey, like we think you have a really impressive background. If you've ever thought about starting a company, we'd love to chat to you. So usually talk to someone from our scouting team first, and then you talk to a partner, and then you're either given an offer to join you know, the next residency or you're, or you're not. Um, so it's a pretty straightforward process for founders in terms of what we're looking for. Like, like you said, like there's no pitch deck, there's no company to talk about really what we're looking for is like, you know, we, we, we have a model around the qualities that really great founders tend to have. And, and we're really looking for people who we think have those qualities and probably more importantly, like have exhibited those qualities in the real world. So they don't just kind of say that they have them, but it's like, So, you know, being highly aspirational, I think is one. If I just ask someone, hey, are you super aspirational? I think most people have a general sense of social cues to say, yeah, I'm super aspirational. For us, it's more about like, what are are some really hard, difficult things you've done in life? Like, what are some challenges that you've taken on just for the fact of them being difficult? So those selection criteria are what we're trying to assess during those, those two interview processes. I've had some interesting conversations with people, especially in Austin, where we think about yeah. high quality talent versus not the social cues, but the credentials or the, or the obvious cues that they've done, like they, they've done it before, right? It's, it's somewhat easy to tell that they have the high talent of like, I was employee number 20 at XYZ company. I was employee number 10. Okay. I can see this progression. That's pretty easy to go. Versus, especially, I would think it's something like Antler, it's a lot more of these kind of first-time founders, people kind of jumping in, uh, in, and you're like, okay, I was at XYZ large company, you know, probably number 10,000 at Dell or whatever at Amazon. And so it's not as simple to be, I've gone through the process three or four times, 
I could be very, very high quality, but it's a lot harder to easily show that talent level. How do you go about assessing like, you know, I'm a great engineer. I can actually build the things that I probably want to show that I'm going to be able to build. Yeah, for sure. No, it's a great question. And so I think like if you look at the data on in in the US, roughly 30%, 30 to 40%, depending on the batch of founders coming in, have built a company before. 60 to 70% are first-time founders. Okay, interesting. There are different confirmation biases with those two cohorts, but I'll talk Mm -hmm. about the first-time founders because I I think this is a super interesting cohort. And you're exactly right. Like It is much more difficult to assess just based on the data. It doesn't present the same sort of confirmation bias. Like There's a totally different problem in selecting second-time founders. But for first-time founders, you know, they tend to be younger. They don't have that's super easy to grasp onto. Like I was employee number five of this company. I spent four years there. When I came in, there was a million dollars of revenue. When I left, there's a hundred million dollars of revenue, right? It's like, okay, great, right? Like I can work off easy. of that. Uh, again, rid- riddled with biases, potential bias pitfalls, but it's easy to grasp onto. For first time founders, it's more difficult. And like, this is where I think the work has to be done. So if I think about like, what is the main barrier to being able to provide more capital, being able to reduce the barriers for really great people who want to start companies, it's exactly this problem. It's like, how do you sift through everybody with uh, a super scattered and relatively sparse data set on whether they'd be good or not? And that's exactly why we do the eight weeks, is that actually gives us the ability to take a lot more risk than having to invest up front. So it's like, hey, look, like two interviews, I think you're great. There's there's still a lot of questions here, but let's spend eight weeks together and see if this is really a good fit. It lets us take way more risk than having to just like stroke the check up front, which I think biases you really heavily towards looking for those like really tangible things you can grasp onto. Like, why am I giving this person $500,000? Oh, they worked at Amazon. They worked at Google. They went to Stanford. They did this and that. Like, mm-hmm. it is one of the reasons why there's such a gap of, of being able to make investments into founders at the friends and family stage. So the friends and family can do it because it's like, all right, your friends and family, they know you, they believe in you, whatever it is. One, it's not a great way to get a company started from just a cap table structure perspective. Two, and probably more importantly, having friends and family that can give you $500,000 is probably the worst gate we could set up to determine who should and shouldn't be an entrepreneur. Very true. Like it has absolutely nothing to do with the merit of your ability to be a founder and I think what's happened is we've set up this multiple hundreds of billions of dollars industry. And if you really boil it down, you're like, how much of this industry is really being gatekept by having friends and family that can give you $500,000? And I think it's a really important question to ask. So your question is the right question. Like that is the work to be done. That is why we go after founders at the stage that we're going after them. That is why we have the residency so that we can take you know, swings on people and say like, look, like there's nothing here that I think a downstream investor could grasp onto. So what we're going to have to do is get you into a company and show that you can do it through this individual company. Let's spend eight weeks together and let's use that time to assess whether we think you have, you know, the skills or whether it's the right time or whether you can figure out what you want to build. And then we'll write your check, right? Like you don't have to go through any, you don't have to build a 24 month pro forma. You don't have to do this and do that. I think, So two additional points, like one is 
we don't talk about it often. And, uh, you know, I think the, the really easy like pot shot against Antler, right? And I see this on, you know, social media all the time. It's like, oh, like, you know, Antler makes founders come in and sing and dance for eight weeks before they write a check. And it's like, yeah, sure. Like if you want to frame it that way, I think it's really valuable for the founders too, for two reasons. Number one, you get to spend eight weeks, right? In an environment where you get to really figure out and test, like, is this actually what I want to do? Like, it's a big life decision. If you're actually truly going into building a startup that's going to scale to venture size, you're looking at a seven to 10 year commitment. That eight weeks is time for you to figure that out. More importantly, I think it's eight weeks for you to figure out, do you like us? You know, like that's something that's not discussed very often with accelerators and early stage investors is like founders are signing up to have that person be a pretty intimate part of their life, particularly financially for a decade. Yeah. And you've exchanged a few emails. So on the same accord, right? It's like, you're getting to know us and I want you to have high conviction that you want me to be on your cap table and you want to hear from me for the next 10 years. Like you want to do this together. And I think that's really important for founders because a lot of times I think they're going into these commitments, not fully aware of like, you're attaching yourself to this person if they turn out to be, you know, at worst a bad person, but at, at, at least like not that interested or not that helpful to you building or don't really believe in your, whatever it is. I think you should know that before you dive in. The, the last thing I'll say, and, and this is like a bigger topic that I'm really fascinated by, but you know, if you, if you think about back to your original question, like how do you assess these founders at this stage? So I really fundamentally believe that like innovation is a counterculture. It's actually, a, it, it satisfies all of the conditions of a counterculture. And I think that when we come out of periods like we've had for the last five years, we're like, it's super cool. There's a lot of social status in being a, a, mm -hmm. a founder. Resources are at your beck and call wherever you go. Uh, it sort of cheats away from the fact that it is a counterculture. And now I think what we're going through with the, you know, the downturn, you know, the, the sort of apocalypse that's happened across startups, et cetera, is everyone's kind of returning to like, okay, it really is a counterculture. And the reason I say that is like, I actually think there's a pretty small percentage of the population that actually want to do this job, like to be a founder. The general populace is not a fan of innovation. They don't like innovation. They don't want it. They don't like change. You know, like pick any example. Let's say autonomous driving. Like just look at the sheer amount of public outcry and hatred for autonomous driving. And I think a lot of founders, when it's cool and when there's a lot of status in building startups, they're like, oh, I'm going to build a startup and be on the cover of Forbes and be famous and everyone's going to like me and this and that. I think the reality is like you're actually looking for people who don't care or need that external validation because one, it's not going to be there. And two, you're probably going to build the wrong things if you're using you know, the external validation of not your customers to make decisions about things. And so... For me, in terms of identifying great founders, whether it's through Antler or whether it's just in general for you know ecosystems like Austin, I think it's about defining and, 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 and looking for people who actually do want to be part of that counterculture. And there's a lot of intuition there. It would be the same thing as like if I said like, hey, Jason, let's go out and try to find the next generation of punk rock musicians. It's funny. So uh, Richard Florida, the author of Rise of the Creative Class, right, uh, he was on the podcast a few months ago and we dug yeah. into that and the whole point that he 
of that book was, you know, looking at the history of these areas, the you know, Silicon Valley, Austin, et cetera, that had these innovation cultures going back, you know, they were where the hippie cultures were. And it wasn't, and we kind of dug into, right? And he, this is part of his thesis, was exactly what you just said, is it wasn't so much that the, specifically the hippie culture or the gay culture was, was there. It was that these regions were open to counterculture and that the counterculture yes. of those regions and the openness to it was what attracted yes. to the innovators because at their core, 100% agree, being innovative is counterculture because you have the status, this is back to you know, Clay Christensen's disruptive technology, right? And disruptive innovation. You have a status quo and you have to go in and say, nah, I'm going to go try to break that in some way and likely lose and get crushed. And you have to have a certain both naivete because you're like, nah, I can do that. And a level of optimism to then go mm -hmm. and do that. And you're right. The... Can I go do that? Can I break this? Can I kind of do that? And there was this, you're right, you've had this level of status that kind of, you see yeah. that and so many people are like, I want to do that. And there was this kind of mix of influencer culture, you know, and I, uh, I want to be able to be, be on the, you know, be a big YouTube star, be that. But so many of them for, you kind of flip back and forth between being, you know, loved and then hated and then loved. And then what are you going to be <laughs> like, you know, Edison was 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 hated during his time for a while and loved, and then the same thing with like the you know the titans of the of the late eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds, and you know you you kind of go back and forth with that, you know, and everybody everybody kind of looks back at you know the same thing like Steve Jobs. I mean, how often was he he was the he was the hero and he was the villain. He was the hero and he was the villain. Like, yeah, the narrative like your narrative becomes controlled by the public, and and that's exactly it. Like when when building startups becomes super high social status, you get this long tail, which I, I don't, again, like I don't think are actually part of the counterculture. And I don't mean that from an exclusionary perspective. Like I am the number one advocate for all of our best and brightest people becoming entrepreneurs. Like that is the greatest output that they, that we can have as a society is for all of our best minds to go build companies and bring new technology to the market. Like I don't, I'm not exclusionary at all. I think it's more about finding people who actually want to do it. If you explain to them the reality of being a founder who can build, you know, a company that changes the world. And yeah, like, I mean, you can go back all the way to, you know, the previous generations. You can even look at the current generation. I mean, look at, look at Whitney Wolf, look at Jen Rubio, right? Look at what they had to go through. Look at Elon Musk, look at Steve Jobs, like pick, pick a founder who's had incredible success and ask yourself like, is that actually what you want to do? If so, by all means, let's do it. And you can have an amazing impact on the world. But I think that the startups being cool and there being free money around for everybody encouraged a lot of people who didn't actually want that to do it. And so it's like sifting through like that. So it's not only do you have the intrinsic qualities to be a successful entrepreneur, but do you want to do the job? And one thing I think I very deeply believe is true is like, the best entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs because they can't do anything else. Exactly. It's not, they didn't wake up and like, Hey, I should be an entrepreneur because it's going to be really great for my resume. I'm going to make a ton of money. Everyone's going to think I'm awesome and smart and this and that. Those are all the wrong reasons to be an entrepreneur. I think the best entrepreneurs are like, I can't work in a corporate environment. 
I can't work for somebody else. I can't take direction. And I can't stand that this hasn't been fixed in the world. That I think is where really good innovation comes from. And I think it maps onto a lot of other countercultures where like, it's not a choice for people. Yeah, this, this thing needs to get done and it kind of has, has to, and like I can't every entrepreneur sleep. has that moment is, is fine. I will do it myself. Exactly. And I think that, I mean, going back to the point you made on like the signals that you look for in this and that, this is again, this is like a whole nother wrinkle into the difficulty of like finding these people out in the world is that there, there, there's actually, in my opinion, an inverse correlation of what you'd be looking for, for like a senator or a, a higher, you know, your thousandth higher into a company and this and that. Um, because these people are compelled to fight the status quo, they're compelled to walk to the beat of their own drum. They're compelled to not listen to other people. Um, they're very self-motivated and they have a very strong sense of self that's really hard to shake from the input of other people. Those qualities tend to discourage them from joining institutions that at the time are like well known and well-respected, et cetera. It also oftentimes makes them very bad students or very bad employees, right? And so, you know, you're looking at a situation where like, I think a lot of great founders out there, if you were to call their previous employer and ask them, hey, is this the best person on your entire team? People would expect that the answer would always be yes. But I think a lot of times you'd be like, I mean, they're super smart. No one can get their arms around them. It's super hard to keep them focused on the right thing. Uh, they're not like all these things. So it, it makes the problem even more complex because those intrinsic qualities tend to manifest themselves in like being very disagreeable with the external world. And being very disagreeable, disagreeable with the external world sometimes doesn't always give you the best reputation. Exactly. So it's this like enigma in a in a enigma of like finding, you know, these people and giving them a place to be, giving them a place where they can explore the possibilities of what they want to build, surrounding them with other people who are similar, and then having the resources to be able to, you know, give them their first five hundred thousand dollars to get started and get off the ground. But finding these people is, in my opinion, the whole job. No, a hundred percent. So as we think about counterculture and we're thinking about the regions and finding these people, we're talking about, obviously, you were in Austin, sorry, you were in Singapore, and then you moved to New York, and then you came to Austin. So what drew you here to Austin? What drew kind of setting up another one of these, one of these federated funds in Austin? What was the thesis here? What was different about, you know, coming to this region? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so one point of clarity, like all the locations in the U.S., we're one fund. We're one okay. team. So Austin isn't like its own Austin fund. So New York, Boulder, Austin, if we find founders in other places that come to us and go back to where they are, it, it's all. So me and my four partners in the U.S., we have one fund and Austin is a part of that. So then each each country is its own fund then. Is that how it works? Yeah. So like the U.S. has a fund. Canada has a separate mm -hmm. fund. Um, and then in Europe... Um, you know, the UK has its own fund. France has its own fund. Got it. Um, I won't, I won't, I won't share, you know, I won't get into the European setup, but for the U S it's one fund. We, we want, we all want to work together. It's like, look, we want to have 
boots on the ground in the ecosystems that we're super interested in, but we all want to work together, right? We don't want there to be a, a Texas fund fighting with a New York fund fighting with a Mountain West fund, blah, blah, blah. It's like we're all one team and we think there's innovation here. So just one point of clarity. In terms of moving to Austin, like, I mean, COVID was a big part of it. I was, I, COVID, I was living in the city in 2019, um, going into 2020. I remember, I mean, what was it, May? or March of 2019, like, you know, things were escalating. It's like, all right, COVID's in China. What's COVID? And then COVID's in China and then COVID spreading around the world. And then it's like, oh shit, COVID's in New York city. Like it's here. Everyone grab toilet paper and freak out and panic. And I remember being in the city and it was like, <laughs> yeah, everyone just like woke up one day and it was like, don't go to work, like stay at home. And so I remember I just like called friends and I was like, Hey, do you guys want to like come over here and just chill and hang out? Like, it wasn't at the very beginning. It wasn't like everybody was working and going back to home. It was like a full scale crisis. You know, it was like stay at home and survive. Like, you know, um, so that all happened. And I remember being in New York city and there was like this text message that went around and it was like a picture. I don't, I still to this day don't know if it was real, but it was a picture of like a, a New York DOT memo. And the memo was basically saying, like, we need DOT to be ready to shut down all the bridges in and out of uh, the city. And it, like, went crazy like wildfire. And I was like, you know, I lived in Brooklyn, so if they shut down the Verrazano Bridge, there's no way out of Brooklyn, right? Like, it's like, you know, I'm getting stuck here. And everything just kept escalating. It's like now it's in other cities and the people are dying. You know, they, the news was like 24-7, just like 18 wheelers of dead bodies and everything. So it was like a full-scale panic. So I called my dad, who's a he's a private pilot, and I said, hey, things are getting pretty gnarly up here. Like, w- w- could you fly up here and like get me? Like come to New Jersey uh, and get me. Um, and for all the listeners, like, I don't want people to think that like I flew out on a G five and like escaped New York. Like my dad flew his two person $100,000 plane. Yeah. Like a two person Beechcraft Bonanza, the, the doctor killer. Uh, he didn't have the V wing, which is the doctor killer, but he flew it up to Teterboro. I took a Uber with my two dogs with like mask and purple nitrile gloves and everything and got on. We flew out and I remember flying over the city and looking down and being like, this memory is either going to be, I was being, so I'm either going to come back in two weeks and be like, that was such an overreaction and kind of laugh about it. Or this is going to be like a really fundamental memory in my life where I'm like flying over New York city and like leaving, going into COVID. It turned out to be the latter, right? Mm-hmm. Like everyone's lives change. So fast forward, I spent eight months roughly in North Carolina where my family lives. Like I just hunkered down uh, at my parents' place, uh, canceled my lease in New York city. I was like, I'm not going to use it. And the lease is up. So it's super easy to just say, when I go back to New York, I'll just get an apartment, but I'll save money for as long as this takes. And then as things kept progressing, yeah, I think spending my time in North Carolina really opened my eyes to just like how much I appreciate the outdoors and how much I was missing that living in New York city. Like basically what we did every day is just go hiking and I would go hiking and I'll go chop wood and start a bonfire. So I was like, I don't really want to move back to New York City. So I started traveling around the country and I came to Austin. It was the first place I came. And on that first trip, I was like, this is it. This is where I want to live. I love this place. It's got everything I want, a growing tech ecosystem. It's a great place to live. It's got access to outdoors. Like I love the vibes. I found a real estate agent and bought a house like in the middle of COVID on that trip. 
And since then, I think my appreciation for Austin has only grown. I really do truly believe that the, so the Texas corridor, I think from Tulsa, Bentonville, all the way down to Brownsville, Mm. you know, encapsulating Dallas, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, that Texas corridor, I really truly believe will be a center of massive economic growth over the next 20 years. I'm happy to get into why I believe that, but I think we're, I think we're positioned at the center of the world for the next 20 years being here in this corridor. So that was a really long story, but just to give people context. Well, it's funny. I think there's a lot of different reasons, right? And, and I think that as the various regions, right? And it's and it's funny because I talk a lot about the, the Texas Triangle, but as you extend that even up, right? There was a, a graph yesterday that I saw that, you know, Michael Dell posted that was, you know, that Goldman Sachs had put out, but just like the broad scale, you know, mega manufacturing projects that are out there yes. and like how Texas was leading and it was across, it was biomanufacturing, uh, clean energy, batteries, semiconductors, but then even your point, bring that yes. up into, um, you know, from Tulsa to Bentonville, just as we are bringing together both technology innovation and you know the building of physical things you know we are yeah. primed into that like you know ai is uh, yes. and innovation is coming into the physical <clears throat> world and that's where we live that's where that's where we're primed to be yeah no exactly i mean that's that's kind of the cornerstone of my thesis as well is that um you know for the last 10 to 12 years, we've had a real revolution in the digital world and a tremendous amount of growth has come from digital innovation, you know, around, I think, two core fundamental technologies, mobile and the cloud, Mm -hmm. right? And we've created, you know, billions of dollars and many, many jobs around that. I think that will continue to grow. I don't see any reason why that cluster, especially around the growth capital support, those companies won't continue to be in the Bay Area. What I think we're going to see now for a number of reasons is that same model with tweaks of the lessons we've learned over the last two cycles of, you know, VC applied to the physical world, the atomic. So I think about like atoms versus Mm -hmm. bits, no matter how wealthy you are, no matter how obsessed you are with code and computers and this and that, we all have to live in the physical world. And I think especially the new generation coming up, millennials and Gen Z, it's like, there's a lot of really big, important problems that we need to solve in the physical world, right? Like, so we have some catching up to do. And then from that catching up, it's like there's a whole new front of innovation to like drive forward humanity in, in really interesting ways. And to your point, like I think Texas wins on that front, like the cluster around innovation in that space. You have a state which is very friendly to those type of businesses. You have a combination, like what Texas has, it's very rare, is not only a combination of wide open, very affordable land, but also transportation infrastructure built around that land. Like because of the oil industry in Texas, we have like all these open fields, but you can also get things to and from those fields quite easily. That's not true in the other sort of open areas of the United States. Like if you went to rural Nevada, rural Wyoming, it's like, yeah, you could build a plant here, but you'd also have to build all of the transportation infrastructure and probably bring in thousands of people to drive trucks and all of the accoutrement to actually run this is not here. So like we'd have to build way too much. So Texas wins there. I think also that with this combination of, of it, you have a much more broad scale economic opportunity 
I mean, I think you yes. know when the Tesla plant opened up, it was something like, and give me some rope on the on the numbers. It was like two or four thousand people started. It's now heading towards like twelve thousand, with the eyes towards twenty nearby. Now they're talking about like heading towards sixty thousand people working at it, and then the Samsung plant is going to be this, like so. It's not going to be so as much of a bifurcated type of environment, but like actually good paying jobs at every single level. So you're going to have people who have PhDs who are, you know, designing and building robots. You're going to have people working in advanced manufacturing and good jobs. And so it's, at, you know, whether you have a high school diploma, a bachelor's degree, a PhD. So, and that really, I think, creates both good economic growth and good economic opportunity, which I think is going to be a very different type of environment going forward, which is great. Exactly. I think the experiment to outsource all of our industrial base in the United States is is now concluded and failed. Or let's not say failed, because I don't think it was failed. I think at the time, it made sense. There was massive price arbitrage. Uh, it made sense that okay, no one in the United States is going to do these jobs anymore, so we're going to send them over, and everyone's going to work in all the space that's left. Um, the price arbitrage is mostly gone. You know, the, the Chinese economy has grown to a point where, uh, you know, we're now firmly within a, a, a world where, like, the only price arbitrage left is just human rights arbitrage. Like, you're, you're not getting better labor savings in China because it's an undeveloped market. You're now getting better labor savings because they just don't care about it human rights. You know, there are other markets that you could move into Vietnam, India, et cetera, but it's really not the same. And then on the, like you said, like the job creation and the economic growth is like, I think probably the biggest learning we have is that it's, I don't think it's possible to continue to run a country the size of the United States successfully without having that industrial base to create jobs, to create upward mobility, to give people access to the American dream. And instead of thinking about it as like, oh, well, like, you know, so so we're just going to have this whole class of people who are like in a dangerous plant environment doing this. It's like, no, like these plants have also changed. Like we're not, we're not sending people into plants like we had in the 70s and 80s. Like we're sending people into these like super nice plants with technology everywhere right. and safety everywhere and the ability for them to learn and upscale really valuable skills that this, our society needs. The other thing that we learned about during COVID was we could have the most advanced technology, medicines, you know, whatever. And if you can't build it or ship it or get it to you, then it doesn't matter. So we learn we learn the the downside of of these really extended and fragile supply chains, which worked really well for fifty years, you know, in these kind of environments. And then suddenly we found, oh, if we shut down or have these kind of environments, you're like, then you know, if I got to ship it from Texas to California, not a problem. If I have to ship it th from uh, <laughs> you know, China to here or right yeah. now through the, you know the Red Sea. That's a whole other problem. Yeah. And, you know, it's I, I won't get too yeah. far into the geopolitical because I don't know if I have any good opinions here. But like it is not usually the topics of this it, podcast. It, it is, yeah. But like to your point, it is a problem. Like if we can't defend the Democratic allies, of the United States, because, uh, you know, Axis power won't send us Q-tips. 
that's a big problem, right? Like, you know, and so the, if you, if you outsource all of the basic necessities from manufacturing perspective to other countries, like it creates this very precarious bound situation where you can't always step in. You have to kind of fight under the table. You can't always step in for, you know, keeping the world stable and focused on, you know, continuing to grow the, the median quality of life across the world. Like it's tougher to do that. So, which is one of the reasons I do think we, we are seeing manufacturing innovation, supply chain innovation, logistics innovation. We're seeing a whole new class yes. of technological innovation and founders over the last few years that yeah. if you talked about that kind of innovation over from 2000 to 2020, like no one was funding that. No one was talking about that. That was dirty and unsexy and who would, who would do that, right? Yeah. And so that's, what's interesting about like how money, you know, not, not completely. And this is where I think a lot of alpha is like not actually following the social narrative, but like a lot of money follows a social narrative around like what's high status and what's not like, mm -hmm. it's like, Oh, like a manufacturing company is not venture backable. It's like a lot of what you're saying is like, it's not high status. Like we don't want to, we can't brag about this to people. We can't talk about it at South by Southwest. Nobody really cares. So there's the catching up piece, right? Which is, you know, rebuilding the, the 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 industrial base and upgrading the industrial base. And then I think what's really exciting is like there's the the front lines too in the physical world where I mean look if you take global GDP growth and you factor in inflation and you factor in how much then the the the, the inflation piece is fairly easy to do. The hard part is how do you factor in how much of this GDP growth is the accumulation of debt throughout the system? Mm. That's really hard to factor out, but it, it is in my, in my thesis is a much larger part than anyone wants to admit. You can fairly easily get to a worldview where like for the past 20 years, like GDP hasn't really grown that much. And when you say that, and then you go and talk to Americans, I think they're like, yeah, duh. Right. Like, of course it hasn't. Right. Our lives have not gotten better. If anything, our lives have gotten worse. Our outlook for our children has gotten worse, et cetera. And so like GDP growth, in my opinion, is the greatest contributor to the improvement of average quality of life. We need some like really big breakthroughs. Like, look, I think there's lots of be lots of money to be made in SaaS. I think there's lots of be lots of money to be made in applying existing technologies to uh, industries scraping out a little bit more productivities from those industries. Great. I think that's what we've done for, you know, I, I don't know, probably since the invention of our ability to control nuclear energy, we need some big breakthroughs. We need an energy paradigm breakthrough. Like mm -hmm. we need to find a new way to create energy. <laughs> like, or, or uh, like the fact that a country that has perfectly capable nuclear generation capabilities like Germany is shutting them down is crazy to me, but we need a big energy breakthrough. We need a big chip breakthrough. So like we're starting to reach the marginal limits of the Silicon chip paradigm. And like, if we want AI to do all the things that it could potentially do and to grow and, and be unencumbered, we have to figure out optical chip manufacturing, printing at mass scale. Like the, the, our digital world is getting ready to hit a huge bottleneck and then space like 
look, there are planets and asteroids and all of the fundamental resources we could ever imagine sitting out there. Like space to me is the only innovation front where you can actually change the denominator of like human civilization. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is like when they discovered America, it was like the largest single contributor to growth of wealth globally and, and life it was like all this new land that hadn't been factored into the global economy was then discovered. And it was like, we've now got trees and sand and it animals. Was the frontier and, space, right? It was. We conquered the frontier and that ended and we, space became the next frontier and so much of whether you, whether you talk about like Tyler Cowen's great stagnation theory and all this kind of, you always go like, what happened in 1971 and why you know, we talk about this, you know, you, you talk about like GDP growth, but if you look at like total factor productivity going down, it was this whole thing of like, why, why did it all kind of fail? And there was this, this moment, right? It's, it's the moon landing, right? We, we, we went to the moon and then we haven't really gone past near earth orbit ever since is that we, we had, we created this next frontier and then never went beyond it. And if you look at... It makes no sense. Yeah, if me. you look at Generation X, right? And so many of the, the, the founders who were at that, that... Like, they were all influenced by that moment, right? By, you know, the 1969 yes. moon landing because they were all kids of some age, right? You know, young, young kids who saw that and like, this is the beginning. I'm going to go create this. I'm going to go do this next thing. And it was, it was world changing for them. And then we basically didn't have another one after that. Right. And yeah. so that's kind of, in some cases that was the mental stagnation that we had going forward. And then instead yeah. we had just, you know, <laughs> the, the, the moments were, 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 were instead the opposites, right? You had the challenger disaster. Then you had, you know, nine 11, you, you had disaster moments instead were the foundational psychic moments. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And no, I, I agree. And you, you made a great point, which is like one of the really valuable outputs of like doing incredibly challenging things is the inspirational effect it has on the next generation. You, you get this dandelion effect of like every Gen Xer that watched the, the, the moon landing, right. And listened to Kennedy's speech like was touched and inspired in a way. And some actually completely changed the trajectory of their lives to say like, wow, like humans are actually capable of doing like incredible hard things and it's inspiring and it, it touches something really deep in our humanity to prove that we can do those things. So that inspirational dandelion effect, I think is really interesting. But if you go back to space, uh, I mean, going all the way back to our conversation of like the counterculture, like I think a really good question that I ask at people all the time is like, what are your thoughts on space? Like, should we go to space or should we not go to space? And I think it's interesting because a lot of people are like, no, screw space. Like, who cares about space? Why? Like, we have our own Earth to take care of and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, of course, we want to continue to take care of our Earth. But I think it's a really interesting question to ask people. But again, on space, like, I think Texas wins. Oh, yeah. Like, the, the space race is absolutely kind of running through running through Texas. Texas wins space. Like, spa spaceport... Spaceport USA is in Brownsville. I think people really underestimate that like in 20 years, I mean, already like the fa the speed at which society gets normalized to pretty crazy accomplishments, like the fact that SpaceX is basically launching three to five rockets into low Earth or orbit on a weekly basis is like completely normalized now. It was like, that's insane. Like if you went back 10 years, it's really crazy. If you extrapolate that out to 20 years from now, like the impact of 
the space economy on the world. But the fact that like, I really do fundamentally think that it'll mostly be based in Texas. I, I do think though, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting very bullish and optimistic about the, some of the mental and psychological change for like the, the real young kids. And I'm thinking about like, you know, like my children, Yes, I mean, you know, my, my 10 year old has gone all in on chat GPT. Yeah, yeah. Loves it and loves all the abilities and things. And like the yeah. other day, you know, he comes, it was just a random dinner. He's like, dad, I can't imagine the world without chat GPT. Yeah. yeah it's, it's like, his, it's, it's like a customized learning tool. You ask it whatever he wants. You can go and dive into any rabbit hole. Oh yeah. We, we were, we were, th- this was the other day. Like we, we were, we were having a conversation about like, where would you put a coffee shop? And then his next response was, Build me a coffee shop game in ChatGPT. And I remember when I was a kid, we had like a lemonade stand game. Was, <laughs> you know, the rules were fixed and you could only do so much. And now we, we, we had a, you know, we built a, uh, you know, a coffee shop simulator, but to the point of like, we, we could, you know, set any hours and he wanted to put it in a startup, uh, you know, so they could grow with the startup and create drinks of uh, specialty drinks for the hours to the point that he, didn't like the cost of the labor, so he put in robot baristas. Like that's the <laughs> level of creativity that's allowed yeah. for this kind of thing. That you know, and creativity is on fire. And then the other day, like the kids are like, we saw a cyber truck at our school. So like all of this is you know their imagination. They're they're happy about it. They're seeing these different things. And part of it is is one. I mean, obviously ChatGPT is is in the digital world, but now things like the cyber truck and whether you, you like the design or not like the design, but you start having the, the design language of things are changing enough that you're like, Oh, you're starting to feel like the future. Yeah. You know, things feel different and seem different. I mean, that was one of the things that, you know, you could have dropped somebody from, you know, now into the nineties, it would have looked the same. You yeah. know, the clothes didn't change all that much versus like, you know, you go back and like the 60s clothes look different. The 70s clothes look different. The 80s clothes look different. Then we kind of had to back the point, this, this stagnation of, of innovation. It was all, all digital. And now as we're getting into, into the physical, I mean, like the icon houses, the, the, just because of the nature of the, the printer look different. Yeah. And so we're, we're getting into that, into that phase. And so it's. I think they announced it yesterday. They just announced they want a contract to build stuff on the moon. Icon did. Yeah, no, and I, they're going to be announcing those um, their their ninety nine design winners of all the you know you put, create a house for ninety nine thousand dollars at South by, and one I, I thought it was great kind of using price capital and and storytelling, but I think one of the things I'm most excited about is just like the variations of the designs are going to be it, you know it's not going to look the same as other houses. We're going to see, I'm hoping at least see yeah. all sorts of different kinds of things and what can be happening from it. And I think, I think that's the stuff It's just getting back to this difference of storytelling and, and, and get people inspira- inspirational and, you know, hopefully we'll have more of those, you know, moon landing type of moments again. Yeah. And I think like, and this is one reason why I'm, yeah, I've been at Antler for seven years and like, I really deeply believe in what we're doing is I think that it's a huge waste to society for any inspired, capable, smart, hardworking person to not be an entrepreneur and not only not be an entrepreneur, but have the, the inspiration and the resources and the support to build like out at the edges and really drive things forward. Every single person who could do that, that's working on Wall Street, 
working in a law firm, working inside of Google or Facebook is a net loss to everybody else, right? Like what you're contributing to the rest of society, changing the colors of buttons inside of Gmail is negative in my opinion, right? Like the resources that you're consuming and the subsidies that are being paid to the company you're doing is like the value you're contributing back is, I don't know, like I, I, I generally think it's negative. And this isn't a statement to the individual person, right? Like I'm not saying that they're a bad person. If you take that person out, you inspire them, you give them the resources that they need and you push them to the edges, the impact on the quality of life for everybody else can be infinitely higher than the cost of that person living in society. And so I actually don't believe innovation is a trend or a thing. I, th I think it's an imperative. And one of the things that we're facing in the United States is a crisis of focus on that imperative, right? Like we have all these other things that have manifested themselves and are pulling our best and brightest people away from being innovators and, and, and building with, you know, social status and with super high salaries and with beanbag chairs and sushi in the office and all of this different stuff. And, and that's why I think the work to bring down barriers for more people to choose entrepreneurship as a career is really important because like we have to face the reality that like everybody can't afford to not make any money for two years and to work out of their home office and to figure it out with no support. Like it's, it, and I get the argument and people are like, Oh, well, if you can't do that, you shouldn't be a founder and this and that blah, blah. And I just sort of patently disagree with that. Like one of the things, the, the metaphors that I use a lot is like take a job that's really important for society, which I think entrepreneurs are much more so than we talk about like a doctor, Right. It's like, look, we need a bare minimum of doctors or else the whole thing falls apart. And imagine if becoming a doctor was the same process as getting a company off the ground as an entrepreneur. So you said, I want to be a doctor. It's like, great. Day one, Jason, is you sit in your house and stare at a wall by yourself and everybody tells you you're crazy and everybody tells you you're insane and you have to figure it out all on your own. So you got to go find where are the materials to learn how to be a doctor what test do I have to take? You got to go figure all that out on your own. And then you spend four years doing that by yourself. And then you take a test and then they say, you're a doctor, you're not a doctor. How many doctors do you think we would have? Probably way less than we need. And so the same thing applies uh, yeah. to entrepreneurs. So if you take that same, and so instead of making doctors like entrepreneurs, if you made entrepreneurs like doctors, you say, okay, what is the experience that we've created to make sure that there are enough doctors? And keep in mind, it's not about making everybody a doctor. Doctors are still highly qualified and there's still a, a, a very selective process, but there's infrastructure in place and there's a flow to say, if you want to become a doctor, here's what you're going to do. So if you take an entrepreneur the same way, you say, okay, A, there's a place to go, med school. B, importantly, you're surrounded by other people who are also trying to do this super hard thing. If you talk to any doctor, it's like a, a huge reason you're able to get through the whole process because you have comrades, like you're in the trenches with other people. You build these really deep relationships with people in med school, people in your residency and this and that. It's really hard to do it without any anybody else who's going through the same thing. You have support in terms of coaching. This is what you need to know. This is what you need to do. Here's what you need to focus on, blah, blah, blah. And then you have financial support. 
So for a doctor, it's in the form of loans to go to med school. For startups, it, you know, I think the best financial instrument for startups is you have people who are willing to give equity in the company in the beginning to get started off. So like that is kind of how I view the work to be done. And by the way, like I don't think or expect or really want Antler to have a monopoly on this. Like I want a huge amount of focus to be on this part of how do we make it a more accessible experience for people to choose to be entrepreneurs instead of working at Google, instead of being a lawyer, instead of doing this from a really early age all the way to when they're ready, while still being highly selective about who gets through the process. So same thing, like med school graduation rates and residency graduation rates are still pretty abysmal. Like you want doctors to be really good, but you have the infrastructure for anyone who wants to try to try. And that I think is the job to be done. I love it. How do we make a ton more entrepreneurs? (laughs) Tyler, this has been a lot of fun. I always end with the same question. What's next, Austin? What's next? Like what's going to happen next in Austin or is it vague on purpose? I just answer it however I think. It's vague on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, what I think is next in Austin, and I, I try to take a long-term view here, is like Austin in the next cycle, in the next five to 10 years, I think Austin is going to have a surprising amount of really large, very successful, very innovative companies sprout up here. And I think that's going to take what often feels like you know, a hype cycle or a trend or something for the news to write about, where Austin is this burgeoning ecosystem. And I think it's going to accelerate into like, look, the conversation is no longer is Austin a sustainable and successful technology ecosystem. It is. And we're going to continue to put gas in the tank and we're going to continue to drive innovation, you know, here in the Texas corridor. So yeah, that's what I think is next. I think it's going to surprise a lot of people. Love it. Thanks for joining. Of course. Thanks a lot, Jason, for having me and look forward to talking soon. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher. Leave us a review and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.